0: When you're deep in a dark dungeon, and the cleric's down and dying, and you've taken all the potions you had left. And you feel like you are doomed, because that demon you sent loose is coming after you, and you can smell its breath. Don't ever give up. Welcome to Real Point Exchange. I'm your host, Adam Thornsberg, and joining me are co-hosts... Noah, Noah Carden. Carden.
1: And Chris Hammond,
0: and joining us today is uh, Hebanon's games, uh, Caleb Stokes, and he is here to talk with us about his upcoming Kickstarter, Red Markets. Caleb, uh, thanks for joining us this evening.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me on; I appreciate it.
0: Our pleasure. We've been following the uh, development of this game for quite a while through our PPRs uh, forums. And also, it's, it's exciting to see that the day is uh, finally come. Uh,
2: yes, we're going to be trying to launch on May 23rd, knock on all the woods.
0: Uh, so, uh,
2: we are set up to go for then, and it's been, it's been a long road, and there's a long road afterwards, but it's exciting to uh, get it to a point where we can have people uh, participate in the process more. Awesome.
0: So, Caleb, for those unfamiliar with Red Markets, give us your elevator pitch
2: uh and uh, <laughs> yeah i'm working it, on that uh obviously red markets <sighs> yeah long escalator uh, mall of america escalator red markets is a game of economic horror it's a game about uh, supernatural terror becoming another thing on your to-do list along with checking emails and paying rent it's a game where even the apocalypse doesn't let you escape your daily grind uh, and it's just one more disaster like your car breaking down or your kid getting sick so it's very much a poverty simulator but nerd troped in terms of the zombie apocalypse so as not to be offensive or exploitative towards people actually experiencing uh that struggle because it's certainly a struggle that the game sympathizes with and wants to uh, help players empathize with through its uh system so are we in the escalator
0: yet (laughs) i like a pretty a pretty decent escalator right (laughs) it was unlike China nobody was mangled so (laughs) (laughs) Jesus sounds good (laughs)
2: Uh, so the not so elevator pitch would be the zombie apocalypse comes in a world where everyone knows what zombies are and has been force fed zombie fiction their whole lives like us but that kills as many people as it saves but the way it ends up after the whole setting history uh, pans out and where the game starts uh, in America at least uh, the government and the remains of civilization have retreated behind the, the eastern uh, half of the United States, behind the Mississippi, and the rest of the country has been abandoned to the hordes of undead. And the rest of the world has taken some pursuit, hiding behind natural uh, landmasses, and the surviving nation states are collectively referred to as the recession, uh, as they receded behind the lines. Uh, And then everything else is referred to as the loss, as in written off as a loss. So characters in the game take the place of take on the roles of takers, which are people that live in enclaves of survivors that have been left behind in the loss, but they can't get over into the recession because the uh, maintenance of the quarantine is absolute. But like all borders, uh, absolute is a term that is used for politics and not something that's actually possible. So you can get across and you can get smuggled into the world of suburbs and uh, prepackaged food and not being eaten alive if you earn enough money. So takers are the people that are willing to venture outside the walls of their enclave to get what people need, to recover documents that the recession wants, so they can basically sell land stakes for the whatever the land rush will be when they decide to take back the loss, and they trade on the – near extinction of mankind in an attempt to help themselves survive it. Um, so in a game of economic horror, uh, what I mean by that is you are doing traditional horror narratives. You are fighting monsters. Uh, you are running. You are fleeing. You are trying to survive. But you are just as keenly threatened by things like being sick, running out of food, the people you love running out of food, what that does to your sanity, uh, and and things of that nature. Uh, so each each group's and players are going to take on the role of takers, and they assemble into a crew, and you form your company, and you see if you can retire, or if you die trying. So where did
1: this idea initially come from? It's it's really interesting, it's uh, a, a cool idea. It's just uh, you don't really see a lot of people wanting to talk about the day-to-day grind when it comes to horror, horror stories.
2: Well, I don't want to talk about it to the point where it's not a simulation by any means. Yeah. But... Uh, it comes from a lot of places, so I graduated in 2007 during the uh, housing crisis, and then I got my graduate degree, graduated again, and tried to do the job market two years after that, and seeing the difference in that was pretty stark. Uh, so that was the first time I learned anything about economics, because it seemed to be ruling my life, but it didn't find it very interesting until it started you know, destroying everyone around me. Their houses started going underwater. I wasn't raised with a lot of money. Uh, I've gone through some rough times in terms of employment myself. Uh, And I know that I have certainly been more scared during times of that than I have during any life threatening situation I've ever been in. Uh, And then, so there's personal experiences like that. Uh, And I'm also a public educator. So um, the degree to which poverty creates its own atmosphere that sort of uh, self-sustains and echo chambers itself is there's a ton of literature about that involved in teaching. Uh, because it's the biggest thing you have to overcome. And, uh, you know, you when you live it every day, you you realize how starkly different the world is in that. And then, um, so that was all going on before I got into RPGs. And then once I got into RPGs, you know, when I had all these academic influences and these life experiences, I noticed that like, For all of the intensive focus there is on material wealth in RPGs, like Vorpal Swords or Plasma Rifles or whatever fancy thing there is, there are very few games which ever question or examine the ideology of that, even though it informs absolutely everything they do. So in D&D, you get a big fancy sword, and that big fancy sword does help you survive, so it does have use value, but it never breaks the price of it isn't ever variable, and
0: it, it, it just never fluctuates or anything like that. Are you playing a game like Shatter Run, where it's all about being basically professional mercenaries and burglars
2: against corporations that have exceeded the restricture of law? So you're basically risking your life for for money, and then you risk your life for money, and then the next week you go out and you shatter run again. And why would you do that? Like, wouldn't the point of robbing the bank be so you don't have to continue robbing banks? (laughs) Uh, So, and it's not like those games are bad by any means. It's just they're focused on different core activities. And so I wanted to make a game in which you did have a strong financial motivation to tell your story. And not that that would negate your other human emotions and other things that make me more satisfying character stories. But but that it would make it more realistic and allow a more varied range of human reactions in that you do have these very material needs that your characters must fulfill or else. And then you need to build lives around those material needs as best you can. Uh, and when you succeed, despite all of the demands on you, it's more heroic. And then when you fail, despite all those demands on you, it's more tragic than if you are just hanging out in random rpg art universe and decide to go on an adventure i think it's much more noble to go on an adventure because you know the kids need you or your wife's sick or your buddies are going out and they need your help or uh, you have all these motivations beyond just we need to do something at the table this week so i tried to build a game with as much of that build in as i could
1: that's a really interesting idea too because it's it, it's implicit in your game that the characters themselves, the, the PCs, they want to get out, and that's usually not something you see in a lot of RPGs. This day and age, there's not an end state.
2: Yeah, the goal being to quit playing is kind of weird, and I, I acknowledge that, but it makes a game balance issue. Uh, but I still, I think it makes it for a better story, at least in case with the horror story I'm trying to tell. Because honestly, when the, when the when you play Cthulhu or another horror game, the goal should be to get out. (laughs) Like when the, when the creepy guy in the robe says, read this book, you should be like, nope. And you should get in your car and you should go,
0: but there's no game
2: that night. And everyone's going to hate the guy that does that because you're not telling the story. So I wanted a game where like, you could have realistic character moments, realistic character reluctance that still pushes people forward. And so in red markets, Uh, yeah of course you should just go home and wait but then you're gonna starve to death like you're not out there for fun you're out there to fulfill needs and so it very much becomes uh your disenfranchisement is what makes it a horror story uh which is for me the heart of economic horror uh it's losing control of your actions and your morals when faced with these like material necessities that won't stop insisting on it. And then it's the fact that the best way to get that thing is often to give up your humanity and, and be a bastard. Uh, and so coping with that. So yeah, in red markets, you have family members. Every character has to have a certain number of dependents, which are people that rely on you in the enclave to pay their rent and pay their food. Uh, it could be because they're unable to do so themselves. It could be because you don't deem them fit because while your 13 year old sister could go out and kill zombies for money, maybe you want to like you know, keep her from that lifestyle. So you have to do that. You have to pay, pay yourself. And additionally, in red markets, uh, all of your equipment requires upkeep. So you can't just purchase something and then it automatically works for the rest of your life. Uh, everything will have a per session cost. So the laptop into which I am speaking right now, is, was not a one-time purchase, even if I could have afforded to not buy it on a credit card, which I can't. But it is a continual cost for me. I have to pay for the internet. I have to pay for the electricity. I have to pay for any peripherals on it, programming. It's something I keep dumping money into. So in red markets, your gear is essential to your survival, but While it would be very easy to survive if you went out there in, like, a mech suit covered in guns and, you know, anti-zombie drone bomb strikes, uh, you're not going to make any money off of that. And if you can afford to do that, why would you be going out there? So it's very much the balancing act of poverty. You need to get the most done with the least possible resources in order to get out. So it very much becomes an exercise in, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Can you can you go without long enough, hard enough, and be lucky enough while you do it to survive and then be a rags to riches story? Or do you hit the bad roll or hit the wrong uh, or go for after the wrong job and get eaten by zombies or go nuts because you deprived yourself so long and you, you don't make it?
0: Well, I definitely think it's a story that everyone can relate to get cancer, it's just pretty much, even if you go into remission, economic damage that would do to you lose your house. you lose everything, pretty much.
2: Yeah, and I, I mean, I think I probably should have gotten the game out sooner, but
0: I did the best I could. But I think
2: uh, I think you're right, and that's something people relate to. And, and now more than ever, I didn't know anything about economics until the housing crash, the more I think about it. I, knew, I think I knew supply-demand, but that's the extent of my understanding Best screenplay for Big Short was. I mean, we just gave we just gave an Oscar to the guy who wrote Anchorman because he wrote about he wrote about the housing collapse and economics. And I think it's uh widely uh, understood now that like you know a one percent increase in unemployment will kill tens of hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> like. Just in a year, it, through suicides and heart attacks and health stuff, you know, it will just, and that's in the U.S., yeah. a, a 1% dip in employment will do that. So, yeah, I think all people are keenly aware of the stuff nowadays, so I think now uh, is a time for a game like that where you can have a little escapism uh, in it while still kind of
0: dealing with the issues. So, So you've already previously mentioned the influence of economics on red markets, which is at the core of the game. Now, how about uh, some of your other influences? I mean, first off, uh, why was Zombies the uh your best vehicle to accomplish this uh setting?
2: I've always liked zombie films and whatnot. I think best is interesting because I'm, pro- I'm I'm actually fairly certain it wasn't the best in terms of marketing because I, I do agree that the zombie narrative has been sorely abused in recent years. Like when you get people that are like commenting on your on your website about like uh, red mark and say, "Oh, I love this game! It's like this movie, zombies versus strippers." I saw. I'm like, "No, no, it's not.
1: No, please don't,
2: <laughs> please don't say that." And then uh, you get other comments It's like zombie game snore and like, "Oh no! All right, that's bad in the other direction." But I get that, and that's kind of why I wanted it. Uh, I wanted since I wanted to push really hard in the economics and the focus on like what a cycle of poverty does to people and their families. Uh, not to mention when that cycle of poverty is compounded by violence and terror and uh, things like that. I really wanted to not stretch too far in terms of like what people are going to have to believe uh, in terms of the setting. I didn't want to go so far beyond uh, and create a new cosmology and this Zombie is the myth of the 20th century. Uh, it's our it's our most robust myth structure, in my opinion. So the fact that zombies were kind of played out was actually, as I thought about why I picked them and why I figured like this has to be a zombie game, I realized that's why I picked them because they're work. Yeah, they're gonna eviscerate you. They're gonna tear you limb from limb. But it's just zombies. Like yes, it's terrifying. Yes, it's constant. Yes, it's wrong. Yes, it violates all the principles of biology and physics and everything we've come to know of science. But you know what? If you live with them every day and it's your job to go out to kill them, it's still just your job. Yeah. Like, And while I would be very terrified on a crab boat at every moment, there's a bunch of guys who go out there every day. <laughs> or I would be very terrified on top of a high-voltage power line. There's a bunch of dudes who are like one wrong step away from being turned into plasma every day. And it's not that they're not afraid or not aware of it. It's that they don't have a choice and (laughs) being afraid of it isn't going to get the job done. So I wanted zombies that were like weather. I wanted zombies that were like uh, an assembly line. Uh, I wanted them to be deadly. I wanted it to be terrifying when things went wrong. But I still wanted some sort of enemy that you could kind of attempt to plan around and attempt to manage, because terror can be part of the job. You know, going to hell and going to work can be one and the same, and and that's what I want to draw a Red Markets to be about.
0: Now, please stop me if I'm putting words in your mouth on this, but it seems like it's the way that the game's structured. You know, being as I play tested it as well, but uh, how you're. Objects own you, is this kind of like a, would you say, could this almost be like a continuation of the dawn of the dead, mall, zombies, uh, consumerism? Is this kind of a continuation to whereas our, maybe the sins of our past still own us or <laughs> the structure or what not? I mean, it sounded better in my head, Caleb, before I opened my, <laughs> my <names. laughs> <laughs>
2: no, I, I think I, I know what you're saying. Like,
0: uh, like I said, I think zombies are the myth structure of the
2: 21st century. Uh, it's it's you know, it's our buildings Roman. It's the the one sort of original narrative that our, our cultures come up with that's not recycled from like endless archetypes before it. And I think it's really much. It's really about when you have a zombie narrative, you're talking about fear, like you're talking with all monsters. It's some discussion involving. Human frailty and human fear. But I think the zombie specifically sells at representing the Gestalt, uh, the Hobbesian Leviathan, if you want to get all academic about it. The, the fear of everybody, uh, not individual things, not parts of yourself, the fear of everyone else, the, the mass. And so, yeah, you've got Romero and, uh, you know, Dawn of the Dead and things like that and fears of consumerism and fears of, uh, uh, everything else like that, and sort of it dehumanizing you. And I think I'm definitely tapping into that as well. The way I would say I would differ from other typically capitalists, because I'm by no means innovating with a capitalist zombie narrative, is that I am not focusing on it in this aspirational aspect, because I feel like a lot of uh, zombie films that are focusing on economic terms is you go to the shopping mall and you loot to get the mink coat that is you always wanted or the pearls or the fancy gun or the house you could never live in. Uh, or you, you do it to change the power structure and sort of like rebuild this society and flip it on its head to see where the class systems are. And that's not what for me, red markets is really about. Uh, for me, the zombies represent the endless gnawing, uh, consuming, upbraiding force of, uh, Poverty and need and scarcity. Uh, and the irony is that they the scarcity is never ending and it is not scarce at all. It's always there. You always need more of something else. So I really wanted to approach it from a more uh, lower class level. But yeah, but that's why it needs to be zombies. Because zombies are how you talk about totalities. Like if it was a game about sex, I'd throw a vampire in there. If it was a game about, you know, savagery, it'd be werewolves. But when you want to talk about everybody or, like, the social class, I think uh, zombies sort of excel at that.
1: I've noticed in a lot of your description of, like, the recession and the loss in the book, kind of an aspect of dialectical dialectical materialism.
2: Uh, no rebuttal here. Uh, so, yeah, I, I have a lot of training in Marxism and um, things of that nature. So, yeah, there there is definitely materialism uh, and, and specifically physicalism.
1: In that, like,
2: your essence is derived from your uh, material. It's, you know, where you were born, when, what was the available there, what forces were there. Yeah, that's definitely in there. Uh, the reason I put that in there is because I love the game design that's going on today.
1: But I felt like if I was going to do something different that was worth all the amount of time it
2: takes to make a game, I should do something different. And what the theme I've noticed in all these great games coming out like Fate or, say, Apocalypse World that are just running the world is that the force of your personality subsumes everything else. Like, you're, you're, by sheer individual will, you burn past every conceivable obstacle in your way with your aspect or your, your class power or stuff like that and i wanted to make a game where you could be a diverse and unique human being and you can write that in there and you can have skills and you can be powerful and that cannot be enough i wanted to write a game where you aren't you know a special little snowflake capable of burning past all of life's problems through sheer grit where you sometimes you don't have enough bullets or you need a better piece of equipment to do this, uh, where it's very much logistical. So, uh, yeah, it's got a materialist philosophy in there. And then the other reason I wanted to do it is, well, I don't want to write a pro Marxism game by any means. Uh, when I think of capitalist horror, I think about, um, uh, I think about, you know, cutthroat capitalism with its knife on your throat, you know, <laughs> it, you know, the pointy end of the economy. And it's not an anti capitalist book and that's the terror. It's a omni-capitalist book. It's a no matter how bad things get, we'll still have this system. No matter how far we go in the future, we're still gonna do this and we're still gonna do it the same way. Uh yeah, I, I'm not advocating for uh, you know, a return to the Soviet bloc. Uh those guys were <laughs> bastards or but uh at the same time like I think if you get down into the full blown like Theory of Marx. Uh, it, it lets you look at capitalism in an interesting way, specifically a way that's not, you
0: know, worshipping the free market as this universal good. Noah, you've been silent for quite a bit, man. <laughs> Got anything to yeah. add? Do you have any thoughts um, on
1: Marx? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry. Soviet zombies.
2: Um, you also roll dice and shoot zombies. <laughs> yes. And bloody, and there could be boobs in it if you wanted to do that. Or that's other that's things. Tell totally me about the, the, the Soviet and stuff. drag racing. There's drag racing mechanics.
1: And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I gotta Caleb, I, I'm just I'm glad that there's something that's a little less pro capitalism than anything else we got out there right now. <laughs> oh, but i mean, okay I got, I, have,
2: I have nothing on Eclipse's face. Like, oh god, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I mean, those guys are going to start the revolution. Uh, but.
1: But even then, like their their entire ideology is based on a post scarcity economy.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, and and know, yeah, that's the scary part for me. Yeah. You know, we don't invent fusion. We don't find a way to scrub the environment. There are no nanobots. We just keep on doing this because we we're out of ideas. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um. So we've already we've kind of touched on the the setting, sort of inspirations and ideology. But is there anything? Mechanics-wise, for me, mechanically, I guess my biggest inspiration was playing with the RPR crew because uh, I've only—it's only about like five or six years since I even started role playing. Uh, I, I read some books and stuff when I was in high school, but in terms of people that came into the hobby, I am absurdly late. Like, if you go to Gen Con and you ask people like when the first RPG they played, they'll be like, "Well, I was five years old in my." On basement and i'm just like oh, i was 26 and just graduated grad school so i came in really late and as a result of that there are certain things in the rpg community that never quite made sense to me like switching dice just drives me nuts i just think it slows things down uh certain game types but then when we play games that don't do that I just really appreciate a holistic design. So I knew that when I started Red Markets, I wanted one die roll. I wanted some combination of dice that did everything for you. You didn't have to get out the d4s and step on them like caltrops in the night. (laughs) Uh, You didn't have to get a d20 or or figure out if it's the D12 or the D8 by squinting at it in the bag or I didn't, I didn't want any of that. I just wanted a regular dice roll that could do multiple things. So in red markets, there are, there's two D10 dice. There's a red and a black. Uh, You roll both both at once. And to have a success, you need your, you need to be in the black. You need to make profit. Uh, So your black number needs to be higher than your red number. And that's it. You never add to the red only add to the black uh, and the things that add to the black are your skill uh, and then you can add something called charges which are a measurement of how useful your gear is so you don't have to count every individual bullet in the gun you spend a charge on the gun and if it's a revolver or a gatling gun or whatever you're carrying you narrate what one charge represents but the charges add to your roll. So you add your skill, your charges, you add that to the black. If the black's above the red, you're good. If you're in the red, you didn't succeed. So that's the basic success failure mechanic. But with that two-number generating system, and the numbers also have various color codes, you can also generate a ton of other information. Um, so you can make supply-demand curves where the black is demand and the red is supply. You can do hit location and damage, you can do a variety of social role-playing prompts. So, yeah, that was the that was the ultimate goal, and that was uh, the the difficulty in the design because I came so late, and I really appreciate the uh, you know work when you're when you have to work and then learn an RPG system on your free time. You really appreciate a system that's. You know, holistic and as concise as possible. So that's what I was trying to do, while still like reinforcing the economic theme. Cool. So
0: speaking <laughs> of the, uh, yeah, those, the follow-ups are always kind of, <laughs> <kind> of lackluster. <laughs> <of laughs> I apologize. I no, I'm talking
2: you're
0: too talking long. I apologize. Uh, no, it's, you're not talking too long. It's, Let's
2: make these pauses as awkward as possible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it just you're, you're speaking of game mechanics and all, and I think. Uh, Coming at this from a playtester's point of view, I I think the most, uh, one of the most interesting aspects of Red Markets was the negotiation.
2: One of the things that a lot of games will not do because it's not their focus like uh, it is in Red Markets is they won't have irrational actors. So everyone in a, uh, everyone in the lowliest peasant community in D&D is a high-frequency trading computer on our modern stock market because they always know exactly what the going price of a vorpal store is across the entire kingdom uh, via you know magic internet. So in order to make a game about economics and the danger of economics, you had to have variable price structures where you had the potential to be able to gouge clients and get them to pay way more than the worth of the job. Or you had to have the ability to work for way under the value of your labor. And so we added in the negotiation mechanic to be when you're in a traditional GM constructed job where there's a client hiring you to go out to do something for them. Before you go out, you agree on a price. And so the way that works is there's a little ladder of uh, different price points, that gets set up, and it's always factored in based on the number of players you have and the number of people they have to feed. And then it's just percentages of those numbers, so it's pretty easy to calculate. But basically, the client and the takers are moving towards each other until their head's up, and then they start pushing each other on that ladder This via social combat. And then wherever it lands once the social combat ends, that's the price for the job. Uh, and then while the negotiator's doing that, I also want everyone to feel like, even though they are in a desperate situation and constantly at risk, the players need to feel like they are like the coolest and most competent interesting people to follow. So considering they are experts of the loss and experts of the enclave, the system is that you never go in buck naked to a negotiation. You've always done your homework. You're always doing research and trying to get leverage on the client so that your negotiator knows that when they walk in. So when you do a negotiation, it's a little bit like a heist in like, say an Ocean's 11 movie or something.
0: If the negotiator gets into trouble,
2: you jump back to what the other member of the team did earlier before negotiations started. And then you role play that scene. And then we jump back to the negotiator and we see how they use that information or Intel to get out of it. So, because I wanted, you know, it not just to be, a team of murder hobos going out and decapitating zombies for four hours at a time because the the negotiator has to do a lot of complex social maneuvering to make it worth going out and doing that. And then the team of murder hobos need not just decapitate zombies. They need to keep the, you know, silver-tongued white-collar guy that gets them paid alive because he dumped all his skill points into, uh, you know, pre-crash, you know, economic – business acumen uh yeah that's the negotiation mechanic nothing's quite fixed when you go on a market job and then if you don't do uh negotiation you can do a score uh in which case the gm doesn't even show up until the score is designed uh and that's designed by the group because you don't have an assured payday you only have what you can go out and grab Uh, so you decide something that might be worth it and then there's a procedural system for generating a uh, scenario that the uh, market can then come in and complicate so that it's still surprising and fun fun to play through and then it's a matter of how much stuff you can haul back so the uh, the scenario design in red markets is basically split between uh, goods and services goods are player and group design scores that everyone takes a participation in designing the scenario whereas services are designed as contracts in which you're doing hired work for clients. The base setting, as far as what you're kind of looking at in the, what we've seen in the playtest of the day is the continental U.S. with the recession being on the east of the Mississippi and the recession being, or uh, the, the loss rather, on the west side of the Mississippi. And that's a very large area to, to kind of handle. What kind of things can we expect to see, at least in setting as far as stuff out in The Loss. Well, yeah. Uh, well, We would like to take the setting global. That's going to be a goal for us, but the book is 250 plus pages now without all of the setting material written yet, just for, you know, different rule sets that you can add on or take off. So uh, I don't think we're going to get to that in the first book. So yeah, we will be focusing on the continental U.S. As far as what you can find out in The Loss, there are large enclaves that are in the setting and not Most of the time when you play a Red Markets campaign, you generate your enclave, a la something like Dresden Files, where you generate the city in which you're going to play in. You generate your little town of survivors, but there are big ones set in the setting. So there is Ubik City, which is the basically Google of the setting, which allows everyone, even though they're in the apocalypse, to use the Internet using uh, high-altitude Internet Wi-Fi servers floating in the stratosphere on weather balloons. Uh, which is actually something Google's trying to do. So I'm just extrapolating that. And they are the uh, original takers, so they kind of run the whole show uh, and and broker between the different groups around the loss. There's distributies, which are uh, basically Amazon distribution centers that get turned into massive warehouse cities with people living amongst the shelving and uh, using drones to ship goods out to people. There's... uh, there's Leper, which is a city for Lelaten, so people that are infected by the, the blight, the zombie virus, but they are asymptomatic car- carriers, so they can be infectious of other people, but they uh, have, have not died or become flesh-eating monsters yet, but when they do die, they will, and that's very bad. So uh, uh, they have often separated themselves in their cities. There's also settlements, so in the setting... There is the Department of Homeland Quarantine and Stewardship, or the DHQS, and uh, the Ducks go out and they set up forward operating bases and they settle areas of infrastructure they want to make sure they reclaim whenever the government decides to take back the loss. So they send out military patrols and uh, spies into the survivors' groups, Uh, and they're not very well-loved because uh, they are constantly angling to – Take over and secure what the enclaves have for the government when they come back, and they uh, also don't really treat I- anyone uh, as if they have rights because everyone who's over the line in quarantine is considered legally dead. Uh, so they're uh, encroaching on the population. Uh, there's a number of corporations doing the exact same thing, trying to angle for. The land grab of whenever the loss gets reclaimed, uh, and sending out their own uh, PMC forces out into the loss, and then there are various uh, wandering eschatology cults—groups of people that have gone completely post-rational in one way or the other as a result of seeing the majority of society die. Uh, so, uh, cultists of every stripe and shape and ideology wandering around and, and causing problems with your takers. Truthfully, if you're running Red Markets correctly, the zombies should be weather. They should be things you plan around and things that complicate already existing conflicts between you know, the variety of other factions and armies and groups wandering around out in the loss. And uh, is there anything in particular in the
1: recession that you'd like to touch on?
2: Uh, yeah, you can have games in the recession in Red Markets. Uh, so the evacuation was not supposed to be publicly announced in the setting. So the recession is in a actual depression. They are, in, uh, they are suffering under these massive refugee communities, sort of ubiquitously known as free parking, because there are these uh, massive tent cities made of cars without of gas. They streaked over the river before the border closed. Um, and the uh, areas that are still well off have restructured what a city looks like under core and texture. So, uh, every city is now built like a medieval castle town with uh, sections that can be amputated uh, with their own fortifications. And so, there's, there's that. So, society's completely restructured over there. Law is much more draconian as a result of the quarantine and keeping people safe. Uh, and it's arguably rightfully so, uh, but you know that's a matter of contention uh, in the setting. Uh, as in, you know, conscriptions come back, as has, you know, summary execution on the belief of possibility of infection and uh, slavery of people that are considered infected. So they'll make latents go work outside the fence against their will and just rampant poverty and need, a lot of crime. Uh, So the recession has its uh, its own complications compared to uh, the loss, but it's a very It's a very different game over there, because it's much more about social intrigue and uh, politics and making sure that you appear as if you belong. Uh, Because you know, in a world where, had one person had the wherewithal to see that guy acting funny and twitchy and just beat him to death with a brick, billions of people would now be alive. They don't play around very much. So don't act weird, don't act hostile, because they're not going to give you a warning. So.
1: All right. Jesus.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's it's rough, man.
2: <laughs> Sorry. God
0: damn. I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> what type of tools does Red Markets provide GMs to uh, create a scenario?
2: Well, Red Markets is very modular. So if you want to, you can just get your group together, say your job's going to be worth this much bounty, grab your stuff, go to the job, do the job, go home. It could be very simple. Here's the dungeon. Go kill the zombies. Come back from the dungeon. You're done. But there's a number of systems that you can tack onto the front, middle, or end of that to extend and make a game that you want. And each of those systems are sort of self-contained with specific instructions on how to structure it, or uh, randomly generated roll tables that you can just generate stuff on the fly. So um, if you want a full everything you can do red market session. You would start with vignettes in which you have an interpersonal role play with uh, one of your dependents taken over by one of the characters in the group. Uh, So you basically are playing two or three characters in a Red Markets campaign. You're your taker most of the time, but you also get to play the family member of somebody else's taker, and they have needs and wants and desires. And so you sort of start off every session by humanizing your character And there's a uh, system of that, uh, very similar to drama system kind of stuff, where it's much more focused on interpersonal role play. Uh, There's prep work for negotiations. There's finding the negotiations. Once you're there and you've selected a job, you do the negotiations. You you do all the various scans that help you get the leg up and win those. Uh, Once you fix a price, now there's a whole other system where you can randomly roll on a D100 table for what's called legs, which are encounters between your enclave and wherever you're going for a job. So uh, legs can be good. They can be bad. They can be horrific and kill you before you even get there. They can be more profitable than the job itself. It all depends on what you're going to run into as you wander through the wasteland. Uh, Then there's the job site. The job site always has a complication, so something will always go wrong. It's called the uh, same shit, different day rule. And then once you're done, you can have legs on the way back. Uh, if you want to, and you can add those in. And then there's also MBA rules, Masters of Business Association rules. So that's if you make a lot and you want to reinvest it into your business, you could make your own investments. Uh, So speculate on a different taker group. You can subcontract people. Uh, You can run your own business. You could hire out, you could give loans or take loans in. So the MBA rules are for Every other form of economic production you might be able to think of to survive beyond, you know, simple goods and services at the core game. And then if you're not a fan of contracts in your uh, market making up all the jobs, you can do a score, which are self-designed scores, which are procedurally generated amongst the table, and everyone has a chance to include something into it, and the market is then in charge of making uh, a complication and making it unpredictable in play. And then finally, if you all go in well and you get to retire, uh, you have the option to do what's called uh, Mr. Joel's, or just one last score, which is, again, is a player-generated job that the market has uh, rules and procedures for making extra difficult, as in it's the job that will set you up for life. You just won't get out of the loss. When you get out of the loss in the recession, if you successfully pull off Mr. Joel's, you will just be... Rich beyond your dreams, and you'll never have to work again. You will escape the system. But as a result of that, everyone would have done it already if it weren't insanely hard. So it's basically the the final meat grinder scenario that if you can get through, uh, your character gets to go on towards a happy ending. Uh, and if not they die and if not, it's the uh, latter part of get rich and die tri- or die trying. So all of those systems can be tacked on or pulled off depending on the length of the session you want and what kind of session you want. Uh, So if you're very much about the action and the shootiness and you're not so much about the the role play, you can skip negotiation. You can skip vignettes on your one shot. You can uh, make sure you only have certain numbers of legs and and things like that. Or if you're very much about the social role play and you want to get into the the psychological mindset of the players, you can focus on vignettes and negotiations. You can focus on the humanity rules, which are a sanity mechanic. So basically, for new GMs, what Red Markets is going to do is that it's going to let you design only the pieces that you're comfortable with, and you don't have to add anything else into the game unless you feel ready for it or desirous of it, because uh, the, the basic scenario structure is very linear and modular, but the way you can rearrange those different subsystems and the variety of stuff you can do within it uh, keeps it from being boring. Hopefully. I don't know. I certainly am not bored with it. It definitely sounds very intriguing having that, that sort of modular gameplay style where you can form it to both what the what you as the the, the GM, the market, is comfortable with running and to what your group enjoys playing. Yeah, and um, with the latest play test, we've also realized that um, – a lot of the rules that playtest people will come back and say were broken, like, oh, this is terrible, it's awful, other playtest groups would come back and like, this is the best thing ever, I love it, and we realized it was just, uh, some of the feedback was just not something we needed to revise, it was just a taste for difficulty, uh, so we've added in uh, what's going to be boom and bust rules, so the game will be written naturally in boom rules, but... A, we'll have sidebars in there. So in a boom mode, you get a lot of bounty. It's very uh, action-packed. Your characters, they're very uh, hardy and tough, and they can plow through a lot of stuff, and it makes the game a bit easier and a bit more bombastic and exploding, and action-packed. Whereas in a bust mode, it is more about the grind. Uh, your characters are very fragile. You're probably going to go through more than one. You know, it is much more difficult to get profit and much more difficult to survive doing it so in addition to the modular modes we're, we're adding in stuff so you can sort of scale your difficulty and you don't have to go all boom all bust you can sort of pick and choose which parts of the game you want to be more challenging or not challenging and uh land where your group wants to be on the spectrum so an all lost mode of of red markets which is what we're playing now is pretty damn brutal uh, <laughs> I designed a game and I'm playing it now and at times I've yelled bullshit and thrown the dice.
1: <laughs> uh,
2: so, it, yeah, it is rough. Uh, but if you want like Dark Souls level difficulty, the game can do that and then it can also scale down from there.
0: Nice. Coming just from a playtester, I thought that uh, like the vignettes definitely added a element of flavor that a GM could, work into the story or would actually organically work in the story. You know, almost in a way it seemed like it was a good opportunity to to fuck your buddy, so to speak with uh, (laughs) requests. Like, I don't know, Chris had played Noah's uh, girlfriend (laughs) and requested a ring. First crack out of the box, so <laughs> <Holy> <laughs> yeah. nice. And a, a ring happened to turn up on a setup of uh, God, what's it called? That thinks that uh, they're the caretakers of the dead. I'm trying the to meek, remember. the meek. Yeah, on the oh, on, yeah. on the fingers of the meek. And my only regret is I didn't make Noah's character cut those rings off said fingers. <laughs>
2: yeah we've codified vignettes a little bit more to help uh because some people were a little confused on how to do that uh so now there's basically three options for a vignette scene uh, which are pretty broad and you can do pretty much anything you want
0: with them but for a vignette
2: scene you can cope in which case you play your taker one of your friends at the group plays one of your dependents or family members and then the uh The GM, the market, plays PTSD, basically. So you have a scene uh, with your uh, dependent in which there is no real interpersonal conflict. You're just hanging out,
0: uh, but that's not very dramatic. Uh,
2: So the GM will play an inner monologue of like whatever horrific nonsense you saw in the last session trying to break in and ruin your family life. (laughs) Then there will be Bear, which will be Uh, Your dependent needs something from you to get by, and it's your responsibility to provide that. Uh, And so that would be very much like your, you need to commit to me. We're in the zombie apocalypse. Go give me a ring thing. Uh, That would be very much a bare responsibility scene. Uh, And then finally, there's an engaged scene, in which case you're describing a neighborhood or a different place in your community. So in the playtest we've had, we have a... (laughs) There's a guy who who uh,
0: <laughs> who powers video
2: game systems using an exercise bike and has an arcade. So all of our characters, like, once per session, end up having a conversation over a game of Contra while, like, some poor bastard pedals away to keep the generator <laughs> running. Well, <laughs> like, that's, like, a neighborhood. Like, the arcade has a name. The guy has a name. There's regulars. Like, so our Enclave, uh, when you engage, you're basically you're not giving your characters an additional responsibility or, or dealing with past trauma, but you are sort of expanding the narrative of that place in which they live. Uh, and then, I mean, usually after you engage in a campaign, uh, the businesses you're engaging with end up, you know, coming up as a job later on, or as a client offering a contract or something.
1: Well, I'm kind of curious about, um, the system as it is like, I've noticed, Caleb, that it's very, very easy to die in this game, but it's kind of hard to go insane. <laughs> you know, I
2: mean? uh, yeah, it's a little it's a little easier to go insane now. It's still pretty easy to die, but I mean that's that's not a bug, it's a feature. <laughs> uh but yeah, we we've uh we've cut off a little bit humanity uh rules and humanity can be a little bit harder uh on people. So, we've, yeah, we've cut one box off of it on every tome, so you basically only have 15 units of it. And with the, with the bust mode rules, there's no real upper limit in how much a check can be. So, for instance, if it's a check against one humanity damage versus zero, that can be negated with the right skill. Same thing for two, but once it goes to three,
0: then you're going to take
2: one humanity damage even if you succeed and then it can go four, and then you're going to take two even if you succeed, and you could take four all the way up to there. So um, the, the humanity damage has been uh, ramped up a little bit. The lethality, if it's gone down, it's because we're uh, changing the hitbox a little bit, and we've added a lot more gear than was in the initial playtest. Uh, so, so armor things that can help you mitigate the damage of things. But, uh, yeah, there uh, are a lot of things in the game that uh, make it pretty difficult to survive. Uh, But there's boom mode games uh, that have a lot of mitigating, like uh, re-rolling to confirm criticals and and things like that. That'll be uh, more lenient on characters that just don't want to keep re-rolling characters as they go through a meat grinder. So, yeah, again, it's scalable now. So that's one change from the beta playtest. So, you are planning the Kickstarter for May 23rd. Yes. Uh, you want to give us any details that you can on what, what we're, we're looking at? Well, I'm trying to learn lessons from other Kickstarters. So, uh, the, the funding we need is entirely dedicated towards the book. So, you're not going to get a Red Market t-shirt. I'm not going to pretend I know how to make a video game. N- nothing but RPG book, and I mean, you'll get a hell of a lot of value out of the book, and everything's going to go into it, but other than books or things related to playing with the book, so playmats mats or dice or GM screens, things like that. We're not doing anything on the Kickstarter. Everything's going to go into the product because I don't want to get trapped into a you know distribution hell. so for red markets we'll be fulfilling through DTRPG there'll be various backer levels for PDF, uh, soft cover and hardcover in which you will be paying that level plus cost and shipping but the level you're paying will still be getting you the book at the regular cost uh, as it will be sold commercially. So for instance, uh we'll probably sell the soft cover version for th- around $30, but a $20 backer reward level will get it to you. But you'll just have to play DTRPG, the difference which is about $10 once you add it together. Uh, but in addition to the backer reward levels getting getting the book at the same cost it'll be when it's sailed. you will get dice, you can get preview APs of a full campaign that won't be posted online. If you're a big RPBR fan, uh, you get the option to name a taker in the book. Uh, you can get Skype games. You can get specialized dice tins uh, that, we're make, that we're making here. Uh, you can get, uh, you know, art in the book of various types. I can come to your house and run the game for you. You can have a game at Gen Con. So uh, it's very much focused on the game and the play and very little on Chotsky's uh, because we don't want to get trapped in fulfillment hell any more than we already have to be. We want uh, all the money and all the effort uh, and all the hype to go towards the book. So that's how we've designed it so far. Excellent. Yeah. You definitely don't want to get stuck with a 60 pound box that costs more than the ship than it did to actually make. Yeah. I, I'm not, I don't have a warehouse. I don't have a, you know, I don't have my own printing press. Everything's going through Lightning Source. They have European offices. So if you're overseas, that'll cut town shipping uh, internationally. Uh, the most I will do is, since we require color D10s, is I can ship you uh, a set of dice so you and your whole group can play with reds and blacks. Uh, but that's pretty much it for physical rewards that I send you out of my, you know, garage office. Uh, everybody else is big professional multi-million dollar corporations handling that stuff so uh we should be good in terms of getting it out the door and to you as professionally as possible
0: awesome Looking uh, forward to
2: it uh, yeah definitely. definitely do you have anything in mind as far as stretch goals uh yes so i would really love it if it was in color that would be great to be able to print that
0: The book is about
2: 300 pages now, or a little over that, with uh, the bare minimum setting information you need to play, plus the rules. And I want to add to that. So we have three setting chapters we want to add. We want to add the loss, which is basically your monster manual slash faction list in in extensive detail. Uh, We want to add a chapter called Best Practices, uh, which we're also going to have for an individual download, which is basically like an onboarding training manual for takers, like uh, types of jobs you take, best tactics against casualties. Like if you were if you were hiring someone new in your crew, what would you give them to read so they didn't get you killed out there? That would be the in character best uh, practices chapter. And we have a chapter called the Carry an Economy, which is hinting at the stuff that is in the global setting uh, outside the continental United States. And, yeah, we have that. Uh, We want to add more art, of course. Uh, I would like to give my freelancers a pay raise. Uh, It's a game about economics, and incentivization is important. Uh, And they have a lot of other people demanding their time. So if I can afford to give them pay raises, that's faster the artwork can get done. And we want to have dedicated forums for the game, things of that nature. And then ultimately, if if it just goes bananas, we have an idea. We want to take the setting global in its own book called Red World, which would be the international, worldwide setting. So, what countries have survived? What borders are they behind? How did the crash happen for them? Uh, how do takers differ in different countries? So you can really bring the setting international. Beyond that, I and uh, Ross Payton will be writing Enclave PDFs. So, uh, what what really accounts for pre-generated? Uh, So Ross Payton and I uh, are also doing Enclave PDFs, which are a version of pre-generated adventures. So uh, it'll basically be a 10,000-word PDF that will have 1,000 to 2,000 words detailing a specific survivor city, its history, its local NPCs, its movers and shakers. And then it will have six or seven different jobs statted out with art and maps in them so that uh, you can just print and play uh, that night, uh, and your characters will have uh, a huge variety of jobs to choose from when they uh, can They can just get ready and go and pick the one they want to do or the one they think is going to pay the most. Uh, so, yeah, pre-generated adventures, uh, pre-generated characters, expansions in the book, more art, color art, uh, those are the main stretch goals. Uh, like I said, we want to keep it as much focused on playing Red Markets as possible and not get distracted and end up doing, you know, a musical or something
0: related on it. Awesome. What was the hardest part about creating your own game system? Why did you choose this particular incarnation of the system you developed as opposed to maybe something that was available through OGL? Well,
2: I think the hardest part is the agony of influence because. You don't want to make a heartbreaker where you've just remade a game with one or two things added on. So that's a fear. So you have to play as much and read as much in the field as you can. But then at the same time, since you don't want to make a heartbreaker, you you also have to recognize when people have done things really well and there's no reason for you to reinvent the wheel. So you have to take liberally from areas that have... uh, you know, you've seen people do it the way you want to do it. Um, so the agony of influence, which occurs in all, all writing, I, I found is a, a a lot more acute when uh, I'm writing uh, my own game system. It, yeah, that that was a struggle. Um, as far as OGL and other game systems, uh, I've written a, a lot of supplements. Uh, you know, No Security and No Soul Left Behind, and I'm I'm very proud of that work, but. I don't want to do just that forever. I, I wanted to try and make my own system, make my own thing uh, from the ground up. And while I don't discount, like, we're writing a Powered by Apocalypse game or a fake game by any means that is uh, good design and great design and uh, design I can only hope to aspire to one day. It's not something I wanted to do. Uh, I, cause I, I just, I mean, that was the desire. I wanted to do something that was wholly my own. So, uh, as Red Markets has come together, that's, uh, uh, not as big of a deal. But when you're first starting out, I think for new designers, that's something to be worried about. Cause like everyone you talk to and everyone you describe your game concept to is going to be like, Oh, you should just do that in Apocalypse World or you should just do that in D20 or you should just do that in GURPS or you should just, and that's pretty discouraging if you wanted to do your own thing but it's you just gotta muscle on through but at the same time with the agony and influence you know what they might be right they might be right that those systems will do it better than what you're going to design so just trying to choose what feedback to take on board and what to ignore is uh the biggest struggle for me
0: doing an open play test like like you did with Markets. Fred Mark, it's, uh how, how does one process, like, uh, like, however many responses you got back? How does, like, how do you maintain a clear vision while incorporating stuff that, like, seems like a great idea?
2: We did a game designer thing on this, uh, and what I've, what I've discovered in talking to other game designers is, like, the problem of processing playtest feedback is normally that there's no playtest feedback. Uh, uh, when you're just getting a start off, it's usually pretty difficult to find players willing to read through your game as a Word doc and give it a lengthy shot of play. So uh, I am very blessed in that RPPR is a fantastic tool for like connecting players together. And uh, people like you were kind enough to give it a run. Uh, so uh, I, I have I I find that Red Markets has had an order of magnitude more playtest reports turned into it and more downloads for people having looked at the beta version than most other indie games. I've, I've, you know, had the chance to get an inside look on the development. I mean, I'm definitely not like fifth ed wizards of the coast by any means, but I got it in more hands than most people did. Uh, as there's a processing, all that, the best way I can sum it up is to say, you know, it's a valid criticism. If you feel like you got caught or if you're pissed <laughs> when they said it for the right reasons. Like, so some people will give uh, feedback. My favorite was, I thought the mechanics and the story were like, eh, and I'm to be clear, that's a direct quote. Like, what? <laughs> that was an onomatopoeia. In, eh, like, that was a direct quote of... Uh, and so I got a little pissed off at that feedback, but my face is the important part. Cause it was like the disgusted really face when I heard that. Cause it was so unhelpful. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like playtested Gen Con's when you're just like, Oh wait, rations just heal endurance and endurance is what you use to run. Why don't you just use rations to run and cut endurance out? And at that point, that's like the hide your anger face. And I look at the person who said it, it's like, you son of a bitch. Uh, and, it's, and that's a good sign that it's like accurate feedback because I'm not angry at the person. In fact, they've done me a great service. I just realized that that's totally right. And I'm going to have to do an insane amount of work to make sure that new rule changes on every fucking page. And so that means I probably need to do it. So, So learning the difference between those two types of anger is uh is pretty key for me when i'm processing feedback Uh, i feel like if it's good feedback and something i need to alter and revise uh, i feel like i feel like i got caught with my hand in the cookie jar or like i didn't get away with something and then the other type of feedback that makes you kind of agree is sort of you know bafflement at how anyone could say that Uh, and you gotta you have to if you confuse the I-got-caught feedback for the bafflement feedback and you think everyone's just wrong and the game's perfect,
1: you are totally screwed. Yeah, uh, so, you're Raven McCracken at that point.
2: Yeah, you're Raven McCracken and you want a billion dollars on your Kickstarter. So there's that. And then the the best thing to determine the types of angers is uh, positive feedback, and that's really important to use. If everybody else is like, oh, I really like this one mechanic, uh, and the other guy's like, "I'll burn down your house for writing this." If there's fifty people saying, "I really like it," and the one guy's just freaking out, maybe he's not insightful. Maybe he's just a jerk. Uh, so that that's the that's the usefulness of positivity, and, and, and along with just like general good vibes, uh, which is important too. But yeah, if I, I say if you are blessed enough to get a whole lot of feedback, learning between those two types of anger was uh, essential for me. So, tell us about defaulting. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just had to get that in there. Uh, You can default now. It's in there. Um, So you have your potentials. Just cap your skills. If you really want to try something you have no skill in it, you can default to your potential. Which means you drop it down to 1d10. You roll that. If it's under or beneath your potential... Uh, if it's even or beneath your potential, you make it. So if you have a potential of one, and you roll a one on the one d ten, you made it. If you rolled a two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you fail. So there is a defaulting ability. Now, now I am not alone in this. Other people not need for defaulting. So this is again uh, one example of something that like other people thought was a bug, and some people think it's a feature. So we're just going to say. Uh, like like when I was trying to deliberate between fast and slow zombies we're just going to say fuck it do both uh, so in a boom mode you can default if you want in a bust game there is no defaulting because if you knew how to do that you'd have a skill point in it um, one go. makes it one makes it harder than the other So,
0: and defaulting just to clarify is just basically pulling something out of your ass more or less
2: <laughs> yes, okay. that's certainly how I would describe it. Yeah. So, uh, there are ideological differences with the fan base,
0: which I have appeased. So I want points for that. Offhand, Caleb, since this podcast's original intention is to be more or less a tool or conversation that first-time GMs or first-time players can use as a resource and turn to and just at least know that somebody is struggling through it, and in this case, it's me because... Chris and Noah have been playing for a long time, despite me being the old guy. What kind of advice can you give to somebody, at least from the perspective of being a first time player and then perhaps like when you run your first game, what kind of tidbits of information can you share with us? For running your first game? Or at least um, we'll start out with playing first.
2: Oh well for playing you you want to find a, a good group of people. I mean, it's a game and uh, games can do a variety of things, and they don't necessarily have to be fun to have worth in, in in like a traditional sense. But the people you're around need to be fun. So the first thing you should do is, even if they're not friends, and you're going to like a gamer table or something like that, uh, at like a, a gaming store, they need to be people that you can be friendly with. Uh, so if you're uncomfortable. If they're uh, rude or crass or uh, harassing in any way, uh, I think you need to find a better group of people. Um, so, but once you have a, a solid group of people, you just need to you need to go all in and you need to you know do your best and to try and engage in the story. And I think it's best to decide what would make this group's story better than what would make my character or what would my character do. So. Um, I think the best role players always decide what would make the game better right now rather than what would my character do or what would best serve me. And that always makes for uh, a stronger game. So always be looking for places where your character can do something interesting for the group that uh, might not necessarily be self-serving or where they can step back because another character needs their spotlight time. If, and if you're if you're playing to contribute to the whole i don't think you'll ever really be disappointed
0: because i think it makes everybody
2: else play towards that as well like the people you're with and uh try and make a better story would be my advice
1: something something very communist <laughs> <laughs>
2: you, you got it Well, uh, we'd like to thank Caleb for coming on and telling us about uh, Red Markets, which is going to be kickstarting May 23rd, correct? Yes. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate talking to you guys. Yeah, definitely. Um, and where can the fine people at home find you on the Internet? Uh, my Twitter is uh, G C-A-L, uh, for Hebanon Games, Caleb. Uh, so you can find me tweeting on there. We talk about the publishing house at, uh, heavenon at blogspot.com. Uh, and then, and I'm a frequent contributor to, uh, slang design backslash RPPR, uh, and the RPPR sites. So, and then we will be updating absolutely everything, uh, and shouting on every social media platform made available to me. Uh, once the Kickstarter comes up on the 23rd. So lots of places to hear me nag you for backing money, (laughs) if that is something you so desire. Excellent. Well, uh, once again, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on, and you're more than welcome to come back at any time. Oh, that'd be great. Cool.
0: With that being said, I'd like to thank Ghost Mice for allowing us to use her song Critical Hit as our introduction and outro of the show. Thanks, guys. I'm Adam Thornsberg.
2: Noah Carden. And
1: Chris Hamm.
0: And special guest. Caleb Stokes. <laughs> Thank you. We'll see Don't you next time. Ever give up. Not all fights are won by skill. Some are won by luck. Don't ever give in.
1: You've gotta keep on trying till you lose or you win. Cross
0: your fingers, roll the die. Wait with hope for the big 2-0. Cross your fingers, roll the die.
1: Let it go, let it go, let it go. Let, let it, go, it roll, go. let it.